Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast for the Wilmington, Ohio Church of Christ. We pray that this message will inspire you and help you grow closer to God in your faith. Be sure to stick around after the message to find out more about how you can take your next best step. Enjoy the message. We are starting a new sermon series on the Old Testament, uh, some of our more famous and favorite Old Testament stories. There's a lot of Old Testament. If you grew up in the church, um, like I did, and you went to Sunday school, and uh, you, your mom was a preschool teacher, and your dad was a, a deacon uh, when I was growing up, um, you heard these stories over and over again. Our Sunday school curriculum was on a three-year rotation. So uh, whatever I learned in kindergarten, kindergarten, first, second, I learned again in second or third grade. And so uh, we had these stories repeated over and over, and they were kind of drilled into us, these Old Testament stories. But not everybody grew up going to church. Not everybody grew up in Sunday school. And so uh, not everybody heard these stories over and over and over again. I had a friend of mine who uh, came to church here, and they said, Dale, you, you said King David, and I didn't know who you were talking about. He said, Father Abraham, I didn't know who you were talking about. And so they never heard these stories before. They had heard of David and Goliath, but didn't make the connection that that was King David that I had been talking about. They'd heard of David and Goliath, and they thought David and Goliath, uh, if you don't know that story, David was a shepherd boy. He killed Goliath the giant with a, a sling, that he, with a stone. And he, he thought that was just a business metaphor where the smaller company takes over the larger company, wins against the, the bigger guy. They, they'd never heard. If you didn't grow up in church, you don't know these Bible stories necessarily. So we're going to look at some of our favorites. And uh, for some of us who grew up in church and they grew, we grew up hearing these stories, it's going to be a refresher for us. And it'll help us maybe see some of these Old Testament history lessons from a new perspective. And if you didn't grow up in church, maybe this will help um, identify where Christianity comes from, where Jesus comes from, where God made these promises in the Old Testament pointing to a Messiah named Jesus and all the promises of the Old Testament are fulfilled in Christ. And so we, I, I, we're hopeful and I'm hopeful that as we look at some of these stories and some of these history lessons, we will see and believe in and put our faith in Christ even more. Um, a couple of months ago, we were studying and we, we talked a lot about Adam and Eve and how God created people in his image. And so that's kind of the creation story. And we talked about how God created um, he, his spirit hovered over the chaotic waters and he brought order to that chaos. And that's the creation story. We talked about that. So we're going to bump a little bit further along. And if you are interested, you can go back and hear some of that as we talked about how God created our bodies. And um, we're going to move into Genesis chapter six. And today we're going to talk about uh, the flood narrative. The flood narrative goes from Genesis chapter 6 to the end of chapter 9, 6, 7, 8, and 9. And uh, just a quick overview. If you don't know this story, you never heard it, um, it, it the quick overview, uh, a quick recap is God saw the people on earth and everybody and all of their inclination of their heart was wicked. And so the people had become corrupt and they were corrupting his good creation. The creatures were corrupt. And creation was corrupt. And he brought judgment on all of the earth, wiping out the whole, anything that lived and breathed on land, including all the humans that were wicked, with a global flood. Except for one family, Noah and his family, who found favor with God and who was a righteous person. And so uh, that's the story. And so after uh, several months in an ark, 
the water receded and Noah and his family came out and repopulated the earth. That's the story in a nutshell. Now, the ark is not something, um, uh, you can go see a life-size version of the ark in Kentucky. They, they, uh, answers in Genesis, uh, the, uh, it's kind of like six flags over Jesus. Uh, they created this Christian amusement park and they built a life-size replica of the ark. You can go see, it's not like um, when, when my firstborn was born, we decorated his nursery with Noah and the ark. And it was like cutesy little stuffed animals. And it was like this boat with a little giraffe sticking his head out the window. No, no, the ark is not like that. This was not a, a movable sailboat with a rudder. This was a floating coffin that had room enough for every different type of animal to live on it. And it was at the whim of the waves and at the guidance of God's hand that they floated until God finally brought them to rest on a mountain and the waters came down. It, it is not like you see in the children's books, the, the ark that, Moses, that Noah was in. So that's our story. And we're going to start off, um, and we're going to break down the story of Noah and the flood, Noah and the ark, in uh, two basic parts. Uh, first part is a wicked world and a grieving God. That's the first part. Wicked world, grieving God. Second part is just judgment and a gracious God. I mean, if you want to write those down, you can write those down. Wicked world, grieving God. That's the first point. Just judgment and gracious God. That's the second point. And I'll hit on several chapters in uh, Genesis, uh, starting with chapter 6. Wicked world is how we're going to identify this first section. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit will not contend with humans forever for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans had children by them. They were the heroes of old men of renown. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Wicked world. Let me read verse 5 out of chapter 6 one more time. I am, that's the name of God, I am, saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. This is a scary place. In verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and full of violence. Verse 12, God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. God had created a good earth and he had put good people there. The good people had become corrupt and now corrupted the good earth. It's a wicked, wicked world. How does God respond to a wicked, corrupt world. Verse 6 tells us, the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. That deeply troubled word there means his heart was broken. He was grieving. See, the wicked world is responded to by a grieving God. That word grieving in the Hebrew is used two other times in Genesis. One, in chapter 34, when the sons of Jacob, Jacob became uh, the name Israel, and his 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, his 12 sons, Jacob's sons, found out their sister had been raped, and they were brokenhearted, grieved over this. 
The other time was in chapter 45 when Joseph, Joseph was sold by those same 12 brothers into slavery and left for dead. And so later they meet him again and he's now in a position of power and they have to come and bow down to him and then they discover that it's their brother they had sold into slavery and left for dead. And Joseph said to them, don't be brokenhearted about this. God made it for good. But they were scared and grieved that they remembered what they had done. That word grieved is really important. See, we want a all-powerful God who is not indifferent. Imagine having a God, having a, a, a parent that, some of you don't have to imagine this, a parent who doesn't care about you and doesn't care if you are hurt or not and doesn't care if the things around you are broken or in use. Imagine having an indifferent parent. Now increase that to an all-powerful God Imagine having an all-powerful God who sets things in motion and is indifferent to the evil that goes on in the world. That is not our God, and we don't want a God like that. We want a God who is all-powerful, that has emotions, that is brokenhearted when he sees people hurting and when he sees his creation hurting. And that's the God we have. A couple of weeks ago when we were looking at Jesus, and Jesus is showing us the very heart of God. John chapter 11, Jesus is at the funeral and the burial of his friend Lazarus. And it says that as Jesus approached the grave, he snorted with rage. He was angry at death because life is precious. And then when he got to the grave and he saw the, the weeping of his friends and their family, he wept. Jesus grieved. That displays the heart of God. Jesus shows us how God cares but Jesus is not a different God than the God of the Old Testament. Jesus is God come in humanity, in flesh to us. He just reveals God more clearly to us. But the God of the Old Testament, same as the God of the New Testament, God grieves over hurting and broken people. And as he looked out over all creation, the order that he had brought out of chaos and the good that he had brought into the earth, he called it good. And the people who were good, now they were corrupt and they were corrupting the earth and God was grieving. This is our good and perfect God who's brokenhearted over people. I had a conversation with a friend of mine named Adam. He's a new friend of mine. I don't know him very well. And I was asking him, do you go to church anywhere? And uh, we were just having this conversation. I wasn't going to invite him to church. He said, no, I don't do that anymore. Uh, and, I, and this was not the time to defend the faith, I didn't think, or defend. I just needed to listen to, to find out what he believed. He said, I used to go to church. I used to believe. But then I grew up and I learned it was all fake. Christianity is built on all, all built on astrology. Now, I've been thinking about what he, what he said to me, and I, I don't think that's true or accurate. But we talked a little bit further, and he said, so many evil things have been done in the name of religion. We need to get rid of all of it. And you know, he's, he's right in one part. There have been many things done evil in the name of religion, including evil in the name of Christianity. But he's wrong about the other part to get rid of it. I said, I, at this point, I had a little give and take. I said, well, there's been a lot of good things done in the name of religion. I, I wasn't pressing him. I was just trying to get him to talk more. And he said, yeah, but you can have good things without religion. I've been thinking about that statement all week. I, I disagree. I don't think you can have good without Jesus there. I don't think you have good without God. I, I'll, I'll give you a couple examples, just, just world examples today. Uh, we have a, a missionary that 
that we pray for that came and spoke here that I can't mention his name. He's a missionary to India. In India right now, the government is trying to have a complete Hindu nation to come to this place of complete Hindu nation. And by the way, a Hindu nation would mean they would uh, reinstate the caste system. It has never left. But there'll be some that it benefits and everybody else it doesn't. And then there's the lower caste who are considered worthless. This is not a good system. This is not good. This is the absence of God and the presence of wickedness. To get to a nation that is all Hindu, they've decided to exterminate anyone who is not Hindu. Thus, they are burning down churches currently and killing Christians. This is happening in our world right now. The absence of God is wickedness. It is not good. Go to any Middle Eastern country, and people have visited there, and they say, it's great. But if you turn to Jesus there, they'll beat your feet until you decommit to Christ, or they'll kill you. Just, I was just reading the other day where a woman in a, in a Muslim community, she shamed their family, so they took her outside, shaved her head, stripped her of her clothes, and raped her with the women cheering on, rape her, and hurt her more. This is the absence of God. This is not the presence of God. This is wickedness. I think, and I believe, that everywhere there's the absence of God, wickedness prevails. I don't think you would have good without Christianity. Not that good things wouldn't happen, but only the presence of God brings good. So I disagree with him. And later, I'm going to have this I'm going to be able to say, hey, you know what? I've been thinking about that. This was the type of world that God saw in Genesis chapter 6. Where everywhere and every heart was inclined to evil, except Noah. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We're going to talk more about the righteousness of Noah in just a second, but how does a God that responds to a wicked world with grief, how does God respond? As his heart is broken, as his good creation is corrupted by corrupt people, how does he respond? He responds with just judgment, and yet he's a gracious God. Just judgment. Chapter 6, and all the way to chapter 7, verse 24, describes the just judgment of God on wickedness. Here's the way chapter 7 describes the judgment on God on people who were corrupt and corrupting his earth. For 40 days, the flood kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits. Every living thing that moved on the land perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth, and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and creatures that moved along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. Just judgment is the wrath of God on sin. This grieving heart will not forever stand and allow sin to continue. In fact, a just judgment limits evil. 
And here, all of the earth, this ordered creation that God had brought out of chaos. Remember, the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. The waters represented evil and chaos. And God brought order out of evil and chaos. That's the creation story. But here, the people had corrupted his good earth. And so God allowed the chaos of waters to collapse back on his ordered creation to make it clean. To wipe away evil. Wrath of God is justice on evil. This is a little dangerous for us. I'll give you a couple of examples and have just a little moment of social commentary. Ecclesiastes 8. This is not the main point of the message, but you might want to write this down. You might want to think about this. You might want to pray about this. Ecclesiastes 8 verse 11 says this. When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, people's hearts are filled with schemes to do wrong. Have you noticed that in our world today? Let me read it again and just think about it for a second. Makes sense. When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, people's hearts are filled with schemes to do wrong. Have you noticed when crime is not punished with a just judgment, crime increases? Anybody else seen that recently? This is a dangerous place to be. So God brings just judgment at the right time to limit evil and to provide what is justice. If there's evil and corruption and injustice, he's going to make things right. That's his response to evil. That's his response with a grieving heart. This was his response with the flood on earth. This is dangerous for us because Scripture teaches that everyone in this room has committed a sin against God. And we deserve a just judgment. Romans chapter 3 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody in here has sinned. This is a dangerous place to be. Dangerous. And it kind of works like this. kind of works like this. I want to draw a picture for us to help us uh, maybe understand how this works about us. This is us. So, what we, what we find sometimes, this uh, circle is going to represent us. What we find sometimes is that we, um, we do something that we didn't mean to do and we regret immediately. This is a sinful action, okay? Sinful action. And we realize, you know, that isn't really us. We're not really sure why we did it, but we, we know we made a mistake, and uh, we, we feel, kind of feel dirty about that. In James chapter 1, verse 21, it gives us instruction when that happens. James chapter 1, verse 21, I, I like how this instruction kind of plays out. It says, um, therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. So when you experience this sinful action, and you think, man, that's not really like me. I didn't mean to do that. I I really haven't done that very often before, maybe ever. And you kind of feel dirty. James says, get rid of that moral filth. Find a way to remove it from your system. Get it out of your sight. Get it out of your thinking. Remove it. and, And go back to the word of God. That's been planted in you because the word of God is a tool the Holy Spirit is going to use to bring about transformation in your life. But a sinful action that really isn't like us, but we did anyway, probably is pointing to something. It's not probably. It's pointing to something deeper that's wrong with us. And we recognize that below the surface, 
We have sinful habits. For example, we don't think about these very often because they're habitual. For example, we will say something bad about somebody else because it makes us kind of feel better about ourselves. And that's called gossip and slander. And the, the scary thing is, we can say something bad about somebody else's that is true and is still considered slander by God. We have a habit of doing that. Kind of makes us feel better about ourselves if somebody else is a little bit less. Or we want to look good to other people, so we just bend the truth a little bit so they don't know that we're as bad as what we really are and maybe we are look better in their eyes and, and that's called lying and that, that's a sin and that's a habit that we're in. Or maybe... You know, sometimes we think we deserve something other than what we're getting. And we take it upon ourselves to make sure we get what we deserve. And to do that, we break God's heart. And we find we're, our, ourselves doing this more and more often when we start examining ourselves. And we realize we have habitual sin, sinful habits. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 7. Verse 17, I think through 23, 24. Let me read it for you. And you see if this doesn't describe somebody you know. <laughs> Romans chapter 7. Maybe it describes you. It describes me. Oh, excuse me, verse 18. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot seem to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I don't want to do. I don't want to talk about people, but I just caught myself talking about somebody again. I don't want to be so prideful that I have to have people look up to me so I make up things so that they, I don't want to do it, but I keep doing it. The evil that I do not want to do, this I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. We're catching this? I want to do what's right, but I do what's evil. I don't want to do what's evil. I want to do what's right, but I end up doing what's evil anyway. These are sinful habits. And they reveal something about us. That the very center of our being... is a sin condition. This is what theologians have called original sin. It's a sin condition. It's two parts. One is based on action. When you sin, you offend God and owe a debt. This is like breaking a law. If you break a law... You owe a debt because of that broken law. If you break one of God's law, you owe him a debt, and the debt is eternal punishment in hell. And think about this. If we had a king, and we walk up to the king, and the king says, don't do this, and then you do it, he's going to punish you. But if you walk up to the king and you spit in his face and say, I'm never going to listen to you, I'm only going to do things my way, off with your head. Imagine doing this to the cosmic king of the universe, the creator of everything. 
and you say, I'm going to do things my way and not your way. It's like you're spitting in the king's face. That's a debt we owe, and the debt is death. So in this sin condition, we have a debt that we owe God, but it's not just based on our actions. It's also a condition of our soul. We have a sin sickness that we can't heal. It's like we have a disease in our soul, and the only person that can heal that disease is God. It's a two-part condition, a debt and a sickness, and this is at the core of our being. For sinful actions, God will give us the strength to get rid of them. It's something we don't do very often. We can turn back to the word. For sinful habits, we realize we got a problem, and then all of a sudden, it's because we're sin sick that it shows up in habits. I was talking with a friend of mine, and um, in this discussion, we started talking about the Ten Commandments. Now, the commandments of God just reveal our sin sickness, our sin problem. This is, this is I said, do you know the Ten Commandments? Not many people remember the Ten Commandments. At uh, Butler Springs, our Christian camp, Keith Warner, the director of our camp, as, as children are registering, he'll go up to him and say, hey, if you, know, if you can tell me the Ten Commandments, I'll give you lots of free snacks at Canteen. Canteen, they, they get a break during the middle of the day. They can go and have ice cream or a soda or something. And, and Keith says, if you just tell me the Ten Commandments, I'll give you free Free food, free snacks. Kids love free canteen. Not, not any, he said he's never met a student that can tell him Ten Commandments. So if you're going to go to Butler Springs, if you're a student, you're going to go to Butler Springs, or if you've got a kid, you're sitting in Butler Springs Christian camp, have them memorize the Ten Commandments before they go. They'll get free canteen. In this discussion with my friend, I said, you know the commandments. My, my friend is questioning whether they believe in God or not. Questioning whether they have a sin sickness or not. Well, the commandments reveal our sin condition. We just start with number one. Don't have any other gods before me. Only worship the Lord your God. That's commandment number one. Well, if you're doubting there is a God, you're not following that commandment to worship God. Already broken one commandment. Second commandment, don't have any idols in, in, before me. Second commandment, well, if you don't worship God, there's a vacuum there in your soul then you worship something. It's whatever you spend all of your money and all your time on. It's whatever you worry about the most. That's your idol. It's whatever you can't live without you have to get. That's your idol. In our discussion, idols were revealed. Broken two commandments. Third commandment. You may know what the third commandment is. I'm not going to get a snack at canteen. Exodus chapter 20. You got it? You know what the third is? Don't take the Lord's name in vain. I said this to my friend. My friend went, oh, God. In our conversation, it already happened like six times. We only had a five-minute conversation, and we've already broken three of the Ten Commandments. Number four, keep the Sabbath day holy. Nobody does that one anymore. Okay? Number five, honor your mother and father. Number six, no murdering. Finally, my friend said, I haven't murdered anybody. We had just had a conversation, and my friend said, I wish that person was dead. Jesus says, if you hate somebody in your heart, it's like you've committed murder. Broken the commandment. See, the commandments 
are designed to reveal our sinful condition. The commandments don't bring life. They show how we're supposed to live. They show what will enable life, but they reveal that we are part of the wicked world. Do not commit adultery. But Jesus says, if you lust in your heart, it's like you've broken that commandment. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not envy. In that discussion, we, it just took about 15 minutes. My friend had broken at least eight of these. And so have we. Because everybody in here has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if we don't break them all the time, we've broken the Ten Commandments at least once in our life. And because we've broken the law, we owe a debt to God. But it's not just the actions. We have a sin sickness that has to be healed or we will receive just judgment. But fortunately, we have a gracious God. One more, one more second here. I just want to spend one more second here. God, God promises we reap what we sow. If we live a path of destruction or we live a godless philosophy, we will bring to us that whatever destruction is on that path. If, likewise, if we live a path that is determined and set out for God, even if we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil because God is with us. We will reap what we sow. A friend of mine, he, he, just, he just texted me on Facebook. He said, pray for me. I've got all, these, I've got all the hepatitises. My body's breaking down. I'm going to die. Pray for me. And he was scared. He has lived for the last 20 years a path of destruction with intravenous drug use and addiction and a life that rebels against God and he is reaping what he has sowed. He has sowed a life of destruction. He is absorbing the destruction. He is going to die. And I prayed for him and I prayed comfort for him. And unless God miraculously intervenes with a new body, he's going to die. And that's the life he was living. But don't let his life fool you. Everyone here has committed sin. Everyone here has a sin condition. Everyone here has sinful habits and sinful actions that deserve the punishment, a just judgment of death. But God is gracious. We do have a gracious God. This is the point of the flood story. See, from chapter 6 all the way to 7 verse 24, it is the just judgment of God on evil and wickedness. And then, after 8 verse 2, it's the receding of the flood and the release of Noah back into the world and his family where they can kind of like be a new Adam and restart creation again. And right in the middle of this story, this uh, flood story is written with this artistic beauty. And if you, if, you, if you start reading it and you start studying it, you'll realize that verse one goes along with the very last verse. And the next section goes along with the next to last section. And the third section goes to the third up from the last section. It all comes to one center point. This is the main point of the flood story. Now, you can take the flood story, Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9, and you can uh, debate on whether it was a global flood or a 
local flood. You can have debates about that. You can debate and, and try to discern how big the ark was and whether the life-size replica in Kentucky is the actual size of what it was. Well, you can debate how did God bring the animals two by two and the different, you can debate all that stuff and you can go into immense minutia on this debate, but don't miss the main point of the story. The author, inspired by the Holy Spirit, made it clear, if you, if you study it just a little bit, that the heart of the story, the main point of the story is chapter eight, verse one. And it has to do with a gracious God. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark, and he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. We have a wicked world and a grieving God. We have just judgment, but we have a gracious God. We don't want to miss this. The heart of the flood story is God's grace, that he remembered Noah. Now, this word remembered is not like God forgot about Noah. He was over here floating, and God was like, oh, yeah, I forgot. I got to go over here and help Noah. He's floating over here. No, it, it, it has this meaning like God puts his attention on you, and out of love, he gives you more grace and more mercy. He gives you the grace and mercy you need to be rescued. God puts his attention on you to be rescued. The very heart of the flood narrative is God puts his attention on Noah and all that were with Noah, and he rescues them. And later in Scripture, this theme keeps coming up that when God remembers someone, and that same word is used, it's not that he forgot them and now he remembers. He puts his attention on them and rescues them in whatever situation they're in. And it becomes a prayer of the Bible. For example, when Nehemiah was building the wall, he said, God, remember me. He's asking for God to put his attention on him and give him grace and mercy in his time of need to rescue him. And he says that prayer several times. Samson, we might hit Samson. I don't know if we will or not. Samson was one of the judges. Samson was an idiot. He was girl crazy. He did all sorts of bad things. And then at the end of his life, he had an opportunity. At the end of his life, he had this opportunity to bring God's judgment on the evil Philistines. And he prayed. You know what he prayed? God, remember me. There's a, a great Psalm 25, uh, verse 7. And it is a great prayer that says the same thing. Psalm 25, verse 7 says this. Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me. That same word, remember me. For you, I am, are good. Remember me. Look at me out of love and give me grace and mercy that I need right now and rescue me. This is our gracious God. This is the point of the flood story. God rescues. He gives grace he gives mercy because he loves and he rescues. Noah and his family were rescued. So we want to think about it this way. Think about the original hearers of this story, the readers of this story. Moses wrote this, this story. He wrote this history lesson. Moses was leading, was leading the Israelites out of slavery and now in the wilderness. So what do you need to hear? If you're in the middle of Egyptian slavery and they're beating you to death under slavery, what is the message that you need to hear while you're suffering? God's going to see you, he remembers you, and he's going to rescue you. Now imagine you move out of slavery, God rescues you through water. By the way, there's some themes here, right? 
It rescues you parting the sea, rescues you through water. No, it was rescued through water. Rescued through water. They get in the wilderness and now you're suffering. What do you need to hear? God will remember you. He will rescue you. God will look on you with love. He will give you the mercy and grace you need to survive right now. Imagine what the original hearers of this message needed to hear. Now imagine what we need to hear in the middle of our wilderness when we feel like our world is falling down all around us. When our world ends, we need to hear God will remember us. What do we need to hear when we recognize, oh yeah, you know, now that you pointed out, I did do something I didn't mean to do the other day. I kind of regret it. And that's not really like me. And then you go a little deeper and you realize, oh man, I'd live like that all the time. I don't want to be there, but I know what I'm supposed to do, but then I do the opposite. And then you realize we have this debt we cannot pay and a sin condition we cannot heal. What do we need to hear? We need to hear God will remember you. God will look on you with love and he will give you the grace and mercy you need and he will rescue you. See, the story of Noah and the flood where God wipes out wickedness in a just judgment, the point we need to take away is God is gracious and he offers salvation. And then Jesus tells us all of the Old Testament actually points to him. How? Well, Noah, the story of Noah and the flood, all the wickedness was judged and everyone died so that one family could live. But in Jesus, all the wickedness and evil is judged and placed on one man so that everybody else can live. It's pointing to Christ. How God will remember us if we are in Christ, being rescued. And he will look on us with love. And Jesus takes away the debt we owe and he pays for it with his life. Because he is human, he can be there in our place. Because he is God, He's big enough to cover over all of our sin. And he gives us a rebirth into the family of God and he takes away our sin sickness. And he makes our heart, which is against God, to be a heart for God. He takes out our heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh. He writes the law of God on our hearts where now it doesn't just reveal where we've messed up, but we want to honor God that way because we delight in his law. God transforms us. He changes our sin condition. He gives us grace and mercy because he loves us in Jesus. In chapters 8 and 9, there's this discussion. There's, there's words that go along. Noah, the water recedes. The ark lands. They open the ark. And the first thing Noah does is he builds this altar and he sacrifices an animal. And the sacrifice of the animal is a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And in Christ... We have the altar, which is the cross, and the animal is Christ himself, and and Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is pleasing to God, and it pays for our debt and heals our sin sickness so that we would have the power to defeat sinful habits and do what is good. Who can save us from this wretched body and sinful habits? Thanks be to Jesus Christ. And we take care of sinful acts where we can live righteously like Noah. You know how Noah lived righteously? He trusted God and obeyed. He wasn't perfect. 
But when God said, Noah, I'm going to wipe out the earth. I want you to build a floating coffin. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7 says, Noah trusted God and obeyed him. That's what righteousness is. You want to be right with God? Turn to Christ. Trust in him and obey. Trust and obey. God remembers those of us who trust him. That's grace. Thanks again for joining us. If you need someone to pray with you, talk to, or maybe you just need more information about our church, please visit us online at wcconline.org connect. Fill out that connect card so we can reach out and help you take your next best step. Thanks again for joining and we will see you back here next time.